You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. Um, If you're here this morning, you must really love Jesus. Um, Or humidity. It is a Texas hair day, if there's ever been one. Um, Every day is a Texas hair day for me, though. So, welcome to Redemption Church. We are a community of people who are trying to center our lives on Jesus, trying to pursue connection and redemption through grace and sharing and exploration. If you're new here, we have some cards in front. Um, We would love to get to know you. If you fill out one of those cards and drop it in the back, we'll shoot you a text or an email, whatever you prefer, and we'll reach out and just hang out, get to know you, hear your story, share a little bit of ours. Um, But I want to start out this morning by acknowledging the fact that we're waking up to, again, yet another news of a mass shooting. This one in our state, this one in a place where any number of us would have found ourselves yesterday afternoon. Um, And right, I I don't know what to do about this. I don't know what to say about this. But, but as a pastor, as someone who's trying to shepherd you in the way of God, as the people of God, what I want to invite us into is a moment of our just collective acknowledging the, the evil, uh, collectively acknowledging and lament the reality that things are not the way that they should be, that this world is, is broken beyond just um, every now and then we make some mistakes and do some bad things. There is real violence that tears at our souls. So I want to give us some space this morning to join in um, the words of the psalmist. And so we've got a couple of different psalms that I just want to read over us as together we lament a fractured and broken and violent world. Wake up, Lord. Get up. How can you keep letting this happen? Don't you care? Don't you care about us? Don't you care about them? Why are you hiding your face? Why do you ignore our affliction and our oppression? We've sunk down to the dust. Our bodies are clinging to the ground. Get up and do something. If you love us so much, will you help us? Will you have mercy on us? We're weary. O Lord God of life, will you revive us? Our bones are aching, our souls are anguish, anguish, but how long, O Lord, how long? Look at us. Turn your face to us and deliver us, save us because of your unfailing love. 
We're exhausted from our groaning. All night long we flood our bed with weeping and drench our couches with tears. Our eyes have grown weary and weak from our sorrow. And our eyes fail because our enemy seems so monstrous, so unbeatable. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. There is an age-old question without a satisfying answer. Um, Why do bad things happen? And you can turn to Christianity, you can turn to uh, philosophy, you can turn to ethics, you can turn to any number of religious or philosophical uh, worldviews, and you can hear answers. It's not that there aren't answers, it's that if we're being honest, most of those answers aren't ones that we're like, yeah, okay, that's great, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'll never, ever have that question again. And I'm not going to address this correct question directly today, but I am going to talk about the reality that is tangential to it. Over the past several sermons, we've been talking about life after death, and last week we began a conversation about hell, and today we're going to conclude a conversation about hell. And we won't say all the things that there are to say, and we won't answer, certainly won't answer all of the questions that there are, and I am not up here proclaiming, thus saith the Lord, uh, hear this and believe this or else. That's certainly not the case. Um, But we want to create a conversation, we want to create a dialogue, we want to create, hopefully, a a redeemed imagination. Because all of these conversations at the end of the day are really answering the question of who is God and what is God like? Right? Maybe it starts with the question of what's going to happen to me when I die or what's, what's happening to my loved ones when they pass on. But at the heart of that is really a question of, God, who are you and what are you really actually like? And will you take care of me or will you judge me? And what does that even mean? And so we've created some space for questions. Um, you can go to redemptionhou.com slash Q&A or Quanda as it is effectually called these days. Um, I love that y'all are free, like, feel the liberty to make fun of me. I want you to always feel the liberty to make fun of me. Um, That's great. So ask your questions. We've had a bunch of really great ones. We're going to spend some time on, I've I've bumped the date back. Uh, I think it's June 4th is the day. We'll answer those questions um, then and there. So if you've got a question, whether it's about hell or heaven or life after death or anything that pops up in our series That's a great place to ask it, and then your hub groups as well, just kicking around. And we are not looking for certainty. We're not looking for, like, the answer that is out there. As pilgrims all together trying to follow Jesus, we are looking for a conversation and exploration. As we're entrusting ourselves to the God of Jesus, we are hoping not to find answers, but to find faith and life and hope and joy and peace and unity in Jesus. And so with that, Let's talk about hell. And we intentionally turned the heat on this morning. We wanted a 4D experience. We wanted you to like hear about it. We wanted you to see it. Don't worry, the flames will be on the screen. We want you to feel it, okay? Uh, no, they're just kidding. They fixed our air conditioner and apparently did not actually fix our air conditioner. So we all get a little bit of swamp in here this morning, which is great. So what is God like? This is the central question of hell. But then also what the scriptures help us do is they can help shape our imagination. And we want, as Westerners, we want to go to the scriptures and we want to find the verse that can answer our question. 
The problem with that is you're gonna find a verse that answers your question, and I promise you, without fail, you will almost always find a verse that would say the opposite of what that verse says. So what do we do with that? Well, we throw the Bible away, and we say that none of it's true, and we go and live a nihilistic life. That's one option. Um, might I suggest to you, one, that that's not how the Hebrew brain worked, that's not how the scriptures worked, and there's just really this dialectical conversation, there's this tension, there's this mystery that the scriptures are inviting us into, and rather than giving us like a rule book, or rather than giving us some sort of like, hey, here's exactly how everything works in a black and white way, the scriptures are inviting us to have our imagination redeemed and restored. Uh, there's some people that have really helpfully described this as what the scriptures are doing is world building. They're helping you understand the world that you live in, not by giving you like a guidebook or a handbook on here's the instructions of how this all works, but by painting you a picture. And so in this, what, what I want to do today is I want to show you that scripture points us to two things that we could really cling to. We can really hang our hat on when it comes to like this idea of wrath and judgment and, and hell. The first is this, that God cannot and will not allow evil to win. That as a people of hope, when things like uh, what happened yesterday afternoon north of Dallas happen, we don't just throw our hands in the air and go, oh, well, sinner's going to sin. Now we weep and we join the scriptures in saying, God, you've, you've assured us that you're a good God. Why won't you do something about this? When will you do something about this? We trust and believe that God is actually going to do something about evil. But then number two, we acknowledge that in God's committed love, God is fiercely committed to making you whole. And so, like, you could stop there and be done and take those two things. Like, that's the whole sermon in a nutshell. Cliff notes, which is not a thing anymore. What do they call Spark notes. That's the, the new one for you zeers in here. So I want to start with this. God cannot and will not allow evil to win. Right? This maybe seems really obvious, but when you actually start to push on this, it can begin to make us uh, fairly uncomfortable. Because what this means is that if God is actually a God of love, and he is, that he cannot be indifferent to evil. If God is a God of love, he cannot be indifferent to evil, and therefore it is necessary for him to be a God of judgment. Right, and so when we say that God is love, so often what we like, uh, because we've been taught it by various things, what we actually hear is that God is a God of tolerance. And tolerance is not a bad thing. We have all seen intolerance and we recognize that intolerance is a bad thing. Uh, many of us have been on the sharp end of intolerance and have been deeply wounded by that. But we've then uh, believed that then, well, the, the opposite of intolerance must be tolerance. But a God who lets just anything go all willy-nilly is not a God of love, but a God of indifference, a God of apathy, a God who shrugs his shoulders and goes, oh, well, I guess, you know, haters going to hate. Do your thing. YOLO, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is that we say. I'm bringing back all the ones from the mid-2000s, 2012 up in here. I apologize. Lord, have mercy on my soul. Well, I wish I could remember his name, but I don't. One of my favorite commentaries on the book of Revelation, he's describing what, oh, oh boy, <laughs> here we go. He's just, I told you, 4D experience this morning, y'all. 
some souls are getting saved today. Um, he describes like this, these, these two pictures. You have the picture of what's going on in heaven where all of these, these martyrs are like crying out to God, God, how long, how long before you avenge us? And you have this picture on earth where like, it seems like God is like wreaking havoc on the earth. And we hear that and we see that and we're like, wow, that's, I don't know what to do with that. And he, he says this really helpful line. He's like, have we mistaken the mercy of God for the indifference of God? And so if I, if I can just be really blunt for just a second, so, money, so many of us read the scriptures from a privileged place that we do not understand what it means to be oppressed. Go and tell the slave, hey, God's a God of mercy and your slave master, it's just, it's cool, it's whatever, you know? There's no judgment. And so love cannot be indifferent. And just to put a fine point on this, um, a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, who is not a conservative, he's not a Southern Baptist, he's not a fire and brimstone guy, he's actually, most people would write him off as being way too progressive and way too liberal. Even he says this, judgment is the only alternative to chaos. There are some things, quite a lot of them in fact, that one must not tolerate lest one merely collude with wickedness. We rightly judge racism. We rightly judge evil. And so does God. So Jesus shows us that God is not just a tolerant God, right? In the, in the sense that he just lets everything go, right? But that in his love and because of his love, God is actually a God of justice. And what do we mean by justice? Right? God's not up there posting on social media, doing justice, right? No, God is actually in the business of justice, which is God taking the crooked and broken world and making it straight again. God, God healing it. God bringing wholeness to it. It's, it's what Mary describes in her song when she talks about those who are in power and oppressing those who are on the bottom. He says, no, 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 what's gonna happen is it's all gonna be flipped. That's justice and God's justice is coming. So if you're on the top, this is going to be experienced as wrath. But if you're on the bottom, this is experienced as liberation. And so the God who judges, judges because he is a God of love. The God who is the God of justice is a God of justice because he is a God of love. If he really is actually the God of love, then he has to be a God of judgment and he has to be a God of justice. To put it another way, the strongest case against Christianity, right? If you want to be an atheist, here's your, I'm putting it on a plate for you. I don't recommend it, but. And I like, actually mean that. If you want to have a conversation about why I don't recommend it, we can actually sit down and have coffee. I'm not trying to um, belittle that point of view. But the strongest case against God is this. If God is so good and God is so powerful, then why evil? You want to know a secret? As Christians, we don't have a great answer to that question. Uh, atheists don't either, but that's a whole other conversation. If God is so good and God is so powerful, he either doesn't want to do anything about evil, which means he's not so good, or he can't, which means he's not so powerful, and so we're left with, there must not be a God. 
Now, there are some responses to that question. Uh, if you're intrigued by it, you can put a question in Quanda, and I will happily talk about that on the 7th. Or we can sit down and have coffee and have an even longer conversation. If you just love to hear me talk, and I know you do, uh, then that will be a treat for you, I'm sure. But rather than addressing that, we're going to move on and talk about hell. So justice shows us um, that God is in the act of rectifying and making straight, making right the world. And so a world without judgment is a world that is consumed by chaos and evil. And so what we see throughout the scriptures, both all the way from Genesis to Revelation, is, is this good and ordered creation that evil has encroached on, chaos has encroached on. And we see it in a number of different ways. One, in the garden, when, when God... Like, Genesis 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. When God shows up, he pushes the dark, evil, chaotic waters to the side, and he brings structure and form. And as he brings form, and as he brings flourishing to the earth, he goes, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then you get to chapter 3. Humanity sins and introduces chaos back into creation. When humanity reintroduces chaos back into creation, the result of it is not life and flourishing. The result of it is death. As you get these like really long genealogies and then Meshushasha lived to 675 years old and we're like, wait, what? And like, don't worry about it because he died. And then he had a son and he lived 893 years old and then he died and then he died and then he died. And the scriptures are making a very clear point. The world is no longer good. The world is no longer filled with flourishing. The world is filled with chaos and evil and death. And so Jesus arrives proclaiming the kingdom of God and says, repent because God's reign, God's justice is imminent. God is in the business right here and right now. He is in the process of making the world right again. He is bringing his vision of the world to earth here and now. And so repent. What does repent mean? It literally means like stop going this way and turn around and go that way. Stop living into the way of death and start living into the way of life. And so we get to John 3, which says something really similar, but with very different language. John chapter 3, uh, I'm going to pull a couple of verses out of what we read. We all know John 3.16. If you don't, fantastic verse. It's really beautiful. Um, but it's also followed by some other verses that you may not have heard. You might have, as we were reading it, might have been going like, wait, what did you just say? And we want to deal with those today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. We're going to talk about life and death in, next in our series, but what that does not mean is we'll not die and go to hell, but instead we'll die and go to heaven. Verse 17, indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is great news. Jesus doesn't show up to judge and condemn the world. Jesus shows up to save the world. This is great. Verse 18, those who believe in him are not condemned. But those who do not believe are condemned already. And this is a key that I want us to focus in on for a minute today. Jesus is not showing up to judge the world because the world has already been judged. What does that mean? We're going to talk about it. Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It goes on, verse 36. Sorry, slides are maybe a little jumbled here. I'll give you a second to catch up there, Kate. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, 
but must endure God's wrath. And there it is in the New Revised Standard Translation of the Bible. Wait, does God have wrath? Like right there in the same teaching from John 3, 16, God so loved the world, but then God's wrath? Wait, what do we, what do, we do with this? But what I want us to see, uh, so NRSV translate verse, verse 36, the end of verse 36 this way, but must endure God's wrath, which is like a really gentle way of translating this. What's going on here is it's a present active indicative. Don't worry about that. Your eyes just glazed over. That's fine. There's like one English teacher that was like, hey, the rest of you are like, huh? It means it's like happening right now. That the wrath is happening right now. He's not describing hell. This is uh, John the Baptist, by the way. We jumped ahead there. John the Baptist is not saying, hey, and those who don't believe in him are going to hell. He's saying that those who aren't believing in him, those who aren't obeying him, those who are not following the Messiah, the way of the kingdom of heaven, are experiencing the wrath of God now. I'm getting real Southern Baptist on y'all. Hold on, sorry. Take I'm about to take out a handkerchief. It's going to be a whole thing. So that judgment is present. And we hinted at this last week when we kind of explored some of the language of hell and talked about how it wasn't really this super clear, obvious place of eternal torment and hell and fire and brimstone the way that maybe some of us have been taught, but that there's tons of wiggle room to interpret that in different ways. Or, or maybe not. <laughs> maybe there isn't wiggle room. Y'all, we're supposed to have a pizza party on the lawn today. <laughs> we're all going to have a Luther moment where we're like, no, 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 we, we repent, we're good. Oh, man. <laughs> so the description in Revelation, I, I, I keep coming back to this book uh, because it's so much of where our idea of the God of judgment in the New Testament comes from where it describes, right, the wrath of Jesus himself. It calls it the wrath of the lamb that is unleashed upon the earth. And there's, right, it's revelation, so God only knows what it means. One take is that Jesus is up there throwing lightning bolts. Another take is that Jesus is stepping back and going, I'm gonna really let you experience what it means to love death. I'm going to give you just a little taste of what it means to keep going down the road that you're going down. And, and here's how it's described. I love this. This is from an Eastern Orthodox theologian called, uh, named Bradley Yersak. He says, the time at Revelation, notice that whenever the abyss, there's this abyss that opens up and smoke and brimstone come out of it and all these like locusts that are not attack helicopters. If you heard that, just scratch that. That is definitely not what that is. Um, they're these like demon creature locust things that go and sting people and it's terrifying. Whenever the abyss is opened in Revelation, all hell breaks loose on earth, on earth as it is in hell. The results recorded are foreseen, destructive woes upon the earth and they are war and famine and disease and death. And the wrath of the lamb is Jesus honoring the demands of people on earth to release humanity into its self-destruction. Right, let me translate that for you. In other words, it is not Jesus punishing people, it is Jesus giving people what they want. And those who are redeemed and saved in the book of Revelation are the oppressed and the martyrs and the downtrodden and the poor. Do we not also see that in the Gospels? 
Is this not who Jesus celebrates and elevates and comes to and goes to great lengths to minister to? So I like, can I stop? None of this is in my notes. I'm kind of off my notes anyways, but that's okay. If you're in here and you think that you are far off, can I just suggest to you that this possibly means that Jesus is closest to you? That, that we have somehow like taught ourselves that Jesus is closest to those who are in the center and the insiders and the religious and the righteous. And yet over and over and over and over, we see Jesus spending his time not with the religious leaders, but with the outsiders. If you feel like you're an outsider, I just want to let you know, Jesus says, no, 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 my child, you are not an outsider. You are home. I'm here. I'm with you. And so if some of this hell stuff is scary, uh, I don't want you to hear that. I would suggest that wrath is not a punishment. So we see the wrath of God coming up in uh, several places throughout the scriptures where it specifically says the wrath of God. Most of the time it's passive. Most of the time it's talking about God is involved in this thing and then there's wrath. It's not God actively like having the wrath, but instead that wrath is this reality that exists in the world. Uh, Romans 1 is a great example of this, that perhaps God's wrath is allowing the old creation, the old way of life, the way of oppression, the way of injustice, the way of like evil playing out. And rather than God immediately intervening and bringing peace and justice and order and life and goodness and joy and delight, he steps back. And that God's stepping back is the wrath. Not God stepping in and, right, whatever, hanging you over the flames of hell like a spider. So if God is going to ultimately set the world right, if he is a God of justice, if he's really actually going to establish heaven on earth, ultimate judgment, what some may also call wrath, um, how are we going to experience it? Right, if Jesus, okay, Southern Baptist, here we go, buckle up. If Jesus showed up right now... (laughs) What would you lose? And what would you gain? Right, sit in that question for just a minute. If Jesus showed up right now, what would he ask you for? Hey, for my kingdom, for my world, for heaven to happen here on earth, I need you to let go of that. You can't have that here. So when when the justice of God comes, the slave experiences it as liberation. The slaveholder experiences it as wrath. It's about orientation to the kingdom of God, orientation to the king of that kingdom. Okay. I'm trying not to make this a two-hour sermon. Part two. So if God is a God who really is a God of love, then he has to be a God of judgment because the world is a mess and we believe that God is not going to let the world be a mess forever. But can we also acknowledge that we are messes and that we as much as anyone else in our various ways, right, each of us is a snowflake, (laughs) contribute to the unmaking of the world around us. Right, in the same ways that we contribute to the beauty, we also contribute to the chaos. And so this means, number two, that God is fiercely committing, 
committed to making each one of us whole. God is committed to making you whole. Which means, one, healing the broken places, healing the wounds, healing the ways that evil has oppressed you. But also means coming in and asking you for some things that we might be holding on to pretty tightly. Some things that we love that might be harming our neighbors. Some things that we do, some habits that we have that might be self-destructive. And so Revelation, if we read it really carefully, right, if you were uh, super curious about it like I was when I was younger, you get to Revelation and there's like the lake of fire in chapter 20 and 21 and then the devil's thrown in a lake of fire and then Hades and then everybody's judged and all the people that weren't in the book of life, ha, lake of fire for you and they burn there forever and you're like, yeah, it's over. And there's like a whole other chapter and like, oh, we're still going? Okay. And so then the kingdom of, of heaven comes down to earth and there's like the city of God and it's beautiful and it's rich and there's this river that gives life to everything and then there's those outside of the city and they're the liars and the adulterers and the thieves and the murderers and the, you're like, what? hold on, wait, what? They're, I thought they were th thrown into the, and so there's this proximity to God that if you are in the city, you are a whole, and that if you are pushed out of the city, you are made, uh, not made, but given up to whatever those things are that happen out there. And then there's this really beautiful line, and the gates of, her, of the city will never be shut. And they're open to the nations for all of eternity. So there's this picture that there is this, at the center of the new heavens and the new earth, there is God's presence in Jesus Christ reigning with us in a world where peace is actually found on earth. And outside of that world are all of those who do not want or want a part of that peace for whatever reason. And yet the extending love of God is always and ever open to them. Like, read it for yourselves. It's beautiful. So what does this mean about hell? In short, I don't know. <laughs> and, we, and we come to our conclusion. I don't know. But the question that, that all of these things are trying to do, right, in, in the Gospels when Jesus is talking about hell, in Revelation when John is describing hell, they are not questions about what happens next. They are questions about what will you do here and now. Will you live into the kingdom of God or will you live into the kingdom of darkness? Because if you live into the kingdom of darkness, you will uh, buy into and perpetuate hell on earth. If you live into the kingdom of light, you will buy into and perpetuate life. And you will begin to experience it here and now. So what do we do with the wrath to come? So there's a real experience of wrath here and now, but there's also seemingly a real experience of wrath down the road. When, when Jesus shows up and actually really makes everything right, what's going to happen? Short answer is I don't know. Uh, longer answer is let me give you three options. And these are the only three options in the history of Christian tradition. So if you want to make up a new one, congratulations, we'll go outside and burn you. It'll be fine. No, I'm just kidding. We, no, gosh, that got real dark. Sorry. Um, Y'all don't know me well enough for me to make jokes like that. So there's three broad categories of understanding like eternal judgment. Uh, the first is the really obvious one that most of us have heard. It's called eternal conscious torment. And there are various ways of understanding this. The, the really obvious one is that God is going to take you, throw you in an actual lake of literal fire, and you will burn there forever and ever and ever, no matter what you do or say or want. doesn't matter. That's what's going to happen. Number two, 
same, in that same world, there are those, C.S. Lewis is one of these people who believe, no, 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 like it's not actual, literal, physical, it's actually like the spiritual condition. And so he describes this in his great divorce using this story. You arrive in hell, people don't know it's hell yet, but you arrive in hell and then everyone is just perpetually moving further and further and further away from themselves or from each other. And they become this despicable, bitter, rotten, like think of like the worst old person you've ever met. They become that forever and ever and ever and ever. This is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's character of Gollum. You take an innocent hobbit who loved to play in the water and loved the light and loved to sit out in the warmth, and all he can do once he gets a hold of evil and power is he just burrows deeper into the darkness and deeper into the darkness and deeper into the darkness. And he becomes this like worst version of himself ever. And so some people understand that to be eternal conscious torment. So that's option one. That God is always and ever willingly extending arms of embrace to these people, but they become some sort of version that does not want it. Option number two is called conditional immortality, which is a fancy way of saying you're going to stop being. And, oh, and by the way, sorry, this is important too. They all have Bible verses. I skipped the part where I'm going to read all the Bible verses to you because uh, we don't, nobody has time for that. You can email me. I will give you. There's tons of them. They each have lots of Bibles. So no one in here is not reading their Bibles. They're all very faithfully trying to read their Bibles, okay? So this one is con- conditional immortality, right? This is they, whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That word perish means like destruction, destroyed, come to an end, And so they're going, look, it's right there in John 3, 16. No, they're not going to be tormented forever and ever and ever. They're just going to like cease to exist. They will be uncreated to the point that they are no longer. And then the last one is uh, the most hopeful of these. And it's the hope of ultimate redemption. The hope that in the end, all things and all people, some even suggest even the devil himself, will be redeemed by God. Now, this is uh, usually popularly called Christian universalism. Here's the problem with that. Universalism usually means like, hey, it's cool, man. You do you, I'll do me, and we're all going to get there. We're all on a road, you know? Just a journey, bro. Just vibes to heaven, which is like fine until you get like, I don't know, an LGBTQ, like, protester, like, leader of an organization in the room with, like, a right-wing nationalist QAnon person, and you say, go, right? (laughs) Like, well, we're not on the same path at all, actually. We're on two very different paths. And so universalism, like, popularly is, like, you see it on the back of the stickers. It's like, it's cool, you know, God is God, and it's fine. Um, But what Christian universalism actually is, and it's so beautiful and so good, And I like this word of hope of ultimate redemption because they will all say this is our hope. This is not an assurance. This is not a dogmatic thing. We are not insisting that this is true. But our hope is that God is so good and so loving and so powerful that yes, in the end, his love will actually win over every single person and creature in the cosmos. And so here's where this gets really interesting. Um, many people have announced that that's a heresy. You can't believe that. Uh, so Rob Bell in like 2011-ish wrote a book called, what's it called, y'all? Someone knows. Love Wins. Yeah, yeah, it's called Love Wins. And he was like, 
I say burned at the stake, but like metaphorically actually burned at the stake. People were like, he's not a Christian anymore. He kicked him out of the church. And can I be frank with you? I don't like Rob Bell. I'm not a fan of Rob Bell. (laughs) I'm not like a Rob Bell-y guy who's like, man, I love Rob Bell. I can't believe they did that to him. But, But can I just suggest that what they did was they took what Rob Bell was suggesting and they completely uh, brushed him to the side because they did not agree with their very narrow understanding of what hell is. And all that Rob Bell did was quote the early church. Hey, you want to know what the, the church like closest to Jesus said and taught and believed? And then he like stood back and watched the, the bomb go off. So we find this in the early church, and we can go through quotes and all of that, but what, what I want you to hear this morning is that their hope was not that Jesus doesn't matter, it was not that sin doesn't matter, it was not that the cross didn't matter, that the resurrection didn't matter, and that, hey, no, it's cool. No, no, their hope was that the cross deeply mattered, Jesus deeply matters, sin deeply matters, and at the end of the day, God is going to redeem all things in Jesus and through Jesus and by Jesus and for Jesus because of his death and resurrection that they are central to the universalist idea of salvation. And so for that, they also believed that God's love was a consuming fire. And that the lake of fire was those, right, using the analogy of slavery. The lake of fire was the slaveholder being thrown into the lake of fire and experiencing the burning love of God that burned away all of the hatred and racism and darkness that was in their soul that would allow them in good conscience to continue down that road until it was gone, and they became the best version of themselves, and they experienced the love of God as wrath and torment. As they are dragged, kicking and screaming, so to speak, into the embrace of God, but willingly at the end, right? And so every single Christian universalist in the early church wholeheartedly embraced the lake of fire, wholeheartedly and insisted on final and ultimate judgment. And uh, not to get too nerdy here, this is where purgatory comes from, right? The stream of thought of like, no, 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 in the end, everyone, well, what about this guy? This guy's awful. Like, really? Him? Even him? Like, ah, he'll go somewhere and it'll all be kind of like dusted off for a little while and then he'll come back and it'll be great. Um, So there you go. So when God fully and finally brings justice to earth, anything that we're clinging to, and and this is the part that I like about this, because it's the part that, that rings true for here and now, what we actually do matters. How we actually give ourselves over to living in the way of Jesus here and now actually really matters, and Jesus is asking for our allegiance. He's asking for us to put down our greed. He's asking us to put down our hatred. He's asking us to put down our animosity. He's asking us, yes, even when we're wrong, to say, you know what, I'm gonna forgive and love anyways. He's asking us to live a life that is not just chasing more and more and more and more and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and power and power and power and power. Like, what if there's a whole other way? Because at the end of the day, when all things are reconciled in Christ, he's gonna go, now I need all that power because it's mine. And I need all that wealth because it's mine. And you'll have looked back on your life and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because you have given yourself over to something that is not actually life, but is death. This is what hell is supposed to do for us. Not scare us about what happens when we die, but assure us that there is life in Jesus here and now. Okay, Lots that I would love to say, but I'm not, I'm going to stop. Here's what we know. We know that 
God is good, that God is a God of love, and that he will not let evil win. He just won't. He can't. If there is a God, I am convinced of this, God will one day eradicate evil. This has all sorts of implications as to who Jesus is calling us to be. The number two, I believe that God deeply loves you. Like, and I don't want that to be a cliche that falls on deaf ears. I think that Jesus, the God of love, deeply loves you as you are right now. And y'all, you're a mess. <laughs> and I don't, I don't say that judgingly. I say that because I'm a mess. And yet I'm convinced Jesus says, I see you. I see your mess. I love you. I'm going to need that from you. <laughs> but I still love you. Jesus loves you deeply and is working to make you whole, even here and now. And how we experience this is based on our orientation. Are we chasing after Jesus or are we chasing after fill in the blank? I want to wrap this up. This is wrapping it up 1A, okay? There's like a series of wrapping up. Just don't want to get my too excited here. Like, okay, we're almost done. We are almost done, but not there yet, okay? Hold on. So we talked last week about this language of Gehenna and how it was this actual valley. And I love, I came across this this week and it's so, I love the Old Testament, y'all, so much because it's so misunderstood. It's like the black sheep of the Christian family. Like you need to understand that the Old Testament is actually really beautiful. I'm gonna show you that today. Um, so like there's this valley, and it's this valley of hell where idolatry and children were burned and it was terrible and awful and it became this place of contempt and like it became a symbol for like being uh, severed from God. It was like a symbol of cursing, an abomination, and here's what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 47. Then God brought me back to the entrance of the temple. Right, so he's, he's in Zion, the temple in Jerusalem, and he's like back at the temple, who's sitting up on this high hill. And water was flowing from behold the threshold of the temple towards the east. So this water goes out of the east of the temple and then it's gonna curve and it's gonna go down south into the ravine. It goes south of the altar. This is the presence of God as the altar. So it goes out from the presence of God south. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate that faces towards the east. And the water was coming out from the south side, going out and then eastward with a cord in his hand. The man begins to measure, right? So if you're, if you're there, if you're in the location, you're looking at it, you're standing out in the east and you're looking at the temple, the water's flowing out of, uh, towards the south, towards you guys. That's where the valley is. The valley is going from east to west and it goes down, the water goes down the valley of Gehenna, down into the Dead Sea. Now here's what's really great about this. All of the fire and brimstone language is a callback to Sodom and Gomorrah that is destroyed with fire and brimstone. Guess where it is, y'all? It's in the Dead Sea. So watch where this goes. So I watch uh, verse three, because I got lost. Okay, going on eastward with a cord in his hand, the man measured 1,000 cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured 1,000 and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured 1,000 and led me through the water and it was up to the waist. Again, he measured 1,000, right? He's going out into these lands of desolation, these lands of like uh, uh, cursedness. And it was, uh, the water had risen so high 
that you had to swim across it. A river that could, could not be crossed, verse 6. And he said to me, mortal, have you seen this? Right? This is an angel, okay? And I love, actually, actually, I, I kind of snark at that, but really what he's saying is like, hey, how often do we put ourselves in the place of God when it comes to like eternal things? And we just with such certainty tell people, hey, here's what God's going to do to you when you die. Here's what God thinks of you. Then he led me back along the bank of the river. As I came back, I saw on the bank of the river, right, so there's this river gushing from the temple down through the valley of Hinnom that was associated with hell, through the Dead Sea that was associated with Sodom and Gomorrah, into the place of Edom that was also associated as like the the son of Esau who came against Israel and was also cursed and condemned. Through all of these condemned places, this water is rushing and flowing. And I saw on the bank the river of the river a great many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. And when it enters the sea, the sea of stagnant waters, the water becomes fresh. And wherever the river grows, every living creature that swarms comes to life. And there will be very many fish. Once these waters reach there, it will become fresh and everything will live where the river grows. People will stand fishing beside the sea from Engedi to Engalim, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of a great many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt, which is a good thing. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food and their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water of them flows from the presence of God and their fruit will be food and their leaves for healing. All right, okay, so if you're not like super into this, like I got, I got chills. This is this picture of the river of God's grace restoring all of the damned places in Israel's proximity. And he doesn't just say like, ah, all right, I guess I'll let you be around. He gives them like deep, rich life and flourishing. Ultimate reconciliation is up to God. It's not up to us to tell our neighbor what God's going to do with them when they die. Now, it's a fair question for us to ask. Um, I've had people in the past that have, I don't know, felt like they were on the outside of Jesus who have said, this question terrifies me. But I, but I want Jesus, and I, I'm like trying to cling to Jesus, and I'm like, no, that's that's good. You don't need to be terrified. Like, if that's who you are, you, need to be ter- you don't need to be terrified. You know who needs to be terrified is the indifferent one. Like, the religious person who stands up with a microphone and is, like, saying one thing and then doing another. That's who ought to be terrified by this language. The arms of Jesus are extended to anyone and everyone, regardless of who you are and what you've done. God deeply loves you. And we are invited to entrust ourselves to that. And that whatever happens to our loved ones, whatever happens to us, 
is not dependent on what this verse or that verse says. It's not dependent on what we wish or hope. It's actually dependent on who God is. And I'm convinced because of Jesus that God is a God of restoration and justice and grace and love. And that makes me really hopeful. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.